morning and welcome to Grace Church of Orange. We're glad you're here this morning with us. We're glad we get to gather together to sing, to worship, to hear the word of the Lord. We're a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. We've had a lot of visitors coming, and you'll notice there's some QR codes around, those little things that look like barcodes that are confused. Uh, that's just a way for you to get connected to our website, um, in which you can sign up for emails. You can see more of what's going on. Like yesterday under the tent, there were over 800 boxes packed for Operation Christmas Child, and we had food distribution going on out of the kitchen um, for the local community. So we'd love to get you guys connected. You can see things like our podcasts and our blog that are also on our website. We just want to make sure people are getting connected to know what's going on here at Grace. We have new yard signs as well. Um, so if you're interested in one of the new yard signs that has the updated times, it's back at the welcome kiosk. Along with our elders position paper. We have a, a position paper back there that explains where we're at theologically and practically at this moment. And there are some printed copies back there at the Welcome Center. As well, you can find that on our, on our website. We love that there's lots of fellowship going on between services. Uh, there's been so much so, especially after this service, after second service, that it's kind of hard to actually hear what's going on under the tent for third service. So we will encourage you kids, if you can keep a rein in on your parents and make sure that they uh, don't get too loud, especially in the grassy area, um, or they're running around with their skateboards and stuff, just, just kind of pull those parents in a little bit so that... that here, third service, people can focus and, and put their attention on it. If you guys would stand with us this morning, we'll start out with scriptures. We're going to go to Psalm 143. We'll read verse 8. It says, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Let's pray as we start. Lord, give us today a hunger and a thirst for you. God, in our, our praise this morning, draw our attention to your glory and transform us by the power of your spirit through, through our worship, through hearing your word. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
standing as if you can as we're going to read the word of God and want to honor that. We're reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 6 this morning, verses 7 to 12. It says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known, and what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You may be seated. This morning, our, our missionaries that we want to remember and pray for are the buyers. They're serving in Germany. Uh, and in Germany, a place of the Reformation 500 years ago, is now a place of great darkness and hard spiritually. And so we do want to be lifting up the buyers that God would give them wisdom in how to connect with people, that his spirit would go with them and open up opportunities as they do things through the arts and as they work, as well as they're working with uh, those who are victims of trafficking or parts of, or parts of the brothels. And, and so they're working in those difficult places, and we want to lift up the buyer's family this morning. We're going to go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are worthy of our praise and worthy of worship, worthy of glory and honor. God, help us to be careful in our approach of you this morning, knowing that it, it's, it's not an approach that was won easily, but an approach that was won with the precious blood of Christ that we could enter into your presence for you are a holy God. Your perfection is complete and your character is unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord God, forgive us for when, we, when we've given more weight to, to our own successes and our happiness than to your will. God, forgive us for when we've, when we've eaten without a thought for those who are hungry or when we've been silent instead of speaking the truth in love. God, for when we have judged others, forgetful that you alone are the judge. For when we have acted in accordance with our desires rather than, rather than according to your commands. God, forgive us for when in our pride we have put ourselves and our needs ahead of others. God, thank you that, that we can confess and have forgiveness because of Christ's work on the cross. Thank you that our debt is not just forgiven but is paid in full. That for those in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. Thank you that your word reveals these precious truths that give us life and give us hope. Thank you for the church and that, that you would adopt us as your children. And God, that even as, as we meet here under the tent, as we sing, as we listen to your word, God, you would be glorified through us. God, let us be quick to love one another and display your glory to the world. God, help us to be wise in how we live in a world as ambassadors for you, not entangled in, in civilian affairs, not distracted by the desires and the appetites of the world, but diligent and hardworking for the sake of the gospel. God, we need your wisdom, Lord, to answer with compassion and care in, in these difficult times. God, produce in us a fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, faithfulness, goodness, kindness. God, self-control. 
In a world that's lost, let our faith and our lives and our actions, our words testify to your greatness. God, we pray for the buyers that, that you would be working out in them your salvation. God, we pray that you would be sustaining their family. God, that you would be giving them good communion with you. God, we pray that you would be opening up doors for the gospel. God, we pray that your spirit would be preparing hearts to hear your words and be soft to it. God, we pray that you would be working where they're at in Germany and all over, God, Europe, a place that is, is hard towards your gospel. God, we pray that your work would go forward, that you would receive glory for changing lives, for changing people who are, are stuck in unbelief. And God, redeeming them just as you've redeemed us. We thank you. God, we lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.
We thank you that Christ's blood covers our sins, that he died in our place so that we can have forgiveness, life with you, uh, the expectation of eternal joy with you. Seems to me that every election cycle, there are more polls and predictions and signs. The signs are just littering the landscape now, right? But there's all these polls. Who are you voting for and why? There's all these predictions. Who's going to win and why? And then you've got all of these signs. Again, littering of the landscape. Vote for this person. Uh, vote yes on this. Vote no on that. They're all over the place. Uh, everyone is pushing for the outcome they want, but no one knows the outcome. Here's what I've taken to doing. I'm praying for the names on the signs. There's some crazy names on some of the orange signs. Um, one, I had to do a double take, because I'm like, is, your, is that really your name? Um, but I've been praying for them uh, that they would come to know Christ if they don't know Christ, and if they do know Christ, that they wouldn't get polluted with the power of politics. And so I just want to thank the good people of this community for putting up those for people's salvation and sanctification. It's a great thing. But elections and polls, predictions and signs. And at the end of the day, OGK, right? You know I say this a lot. Only God knows. Only God knows the outcome. And Ecclesiastes 6, 7 through 12 builds upon the doctrine that we saw in the first six verses last week, the theology laid down, and expands upon the truth that life is totally empty and totally futile if lived without knowledge of God, if lived without acknowledging God's lordship. And they demonstrate, really these verses demonstrate with the fantasy-crushing reality, the person that lives Without God is powerless to have or know or control anything in life. It also tells us that God has and knows and controls everything. Todd Friel of Wretched Radio said, Entire generations have been told that they can accomplish anything if they simply believe in themselves. Sadly, these people crash and burn when they step out of the self-esteem cocoon and discover they can't do everything. Some of you have bought into that lie. Some of you have bought into that idea that you can do it if you just put your mind to it and believe in yourself. But the truth is, you must bow before God's absolute sovereignty. You must be satisfied by sovereignty. This is what this passage teaches us. It's coaxing us to embrace two parallel realities. The first you see in verses 7 through 9 that you cannot have or know or control everything. And then that other reality that's parallel and uh, over it in verses 10 through 12, God has, God knows, God controls everything. Now when Last week, we saw in the first six verses that 
despite having a big family or a long life or prominence or power or riches, uh, your life can miscarry and incur lifelong dissatisfaction and unmourned death. When someone does not acknowledge God, God does not give them the gift to enjoy his gifts. They suffer through that work of affliction that God laid upon fallen humanity at the fall. So Solomon is concluding that such a person uh, that spurns God and his sovereignty is better off never having been born. We saw that last week, very startling. But no getting around the truth. No getting around that truth. Better off not coming into the world. That just existing is not good enough. The only good is experienced in relationship to God and enjoyed according to his plan. Well, think about it. When Jesus spoke of Judas, and he said it's better that if he had not been born, we look at that and go, well, of course, the guy did evil. The guy, you know, went against the Son of God. He betrayed the Son of God, betrayed God incarnate. Of, of course, it's better if, if Judas would never have existed. And we can wrap our minds around that, right? We get that. We understand that. Actively doing evil and not contributing to society Sure, we can accept it. But Solomon pronounces the verdict upon the person that seems to have it all. Pronounces the verdict upon someone that you think, wow, they've got a great life. They've worked hard. They've, they've been blessed. And, and they uh, have riches and honor and children and a long, healthy life. But that person who fails to uh, see the good, as verse 3 puts it, fails to discern the point and the purpose of life and be satisfied in God, that person is better off dead. Now, in these verses we're looking at today, Solomon keeps explaining, continues to explain. And, and so in verses 7 through 9, you see this, this truth. You can't have everything. You can't know everything. You cannot control everything. Now, a lot of you are like, no, no, no. Yes, I can. I, I've got a lot of facts, and I know so much. I'm the class factotum. I know it all. Or you know what? Um, I've got a lot of stuff, and I've got everything I want, and I'm going to get the next thing I want. And plenty of us are like, oh, I can't control everything? Watch me try. It's a treadmill living. In fact, verse 7, put your eyes on verse 7. Look at the text here. Open your Bible up and look at, at Ecclesiastes 6, verse 7. It tells you you can't satisfy every desire, even if you work harder than everyone else. You can't do it. It's treadmill living. It's working to eat to work, right? You, you work your whole life to be satisfied, but satisfaction eludes you. Look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. What does that mean? The mouth refers to feeding, work, uh, generally not for pleasure, but to earn a living, right? So the treadmill's going round and round. Your life and your longing for fulfillment is left empty if you do not acknowledge God. The rest of that verse says his appetite is not satisfied. He's working for his mouth, but his appetite is not satisfied. 
Now, in the Hebrew, that literally reads, all the trouble of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never filled up. But that word appetite also means breath, life, desire, soul. Your soul is not satisfied. It refers to the inner part of the person. It refers to your desires that spring out from your soul. That your longing is never satisfied. That you keep wanting and wanting more and more and more, and bread alone doesn't meet your deepest needs. The person living without God will never find satisfaction in, in possessions or wealth or children or long life. You can live your life working so hard, laboring, that you can fulfill your longings for food and anything else you desire, and yet never be satisfied or filled in your soul. You're always left empty, wanting more. This is the hard, harsh reality of life. Satisfaction is this ever-elusive mistress that promises fulfillment but never delivers. And then you move on to verse 8. Verse 8 says you can't guarantee success even if you know every fact and can organize every detail. So now all the most organized people in the room are like, well, whoa, I've got my life all figured out. I got my five-year plan, my 10-year plan. I got everything planned. I got my retirement plan. I've got it all set. That can be gone in an instant. You can't guarantee success even if you know every fact and organize every detail. Look at verse 8. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? You look at it, you go like, well, I already know this. <laughs> the wise man has advantage in living. Um, uh, but not true. Only if they acknowledge God. It's never by works. So the wise seem to be better off than fools, but as we have seen quite clearly in Ecclesiastes, death levels them both with indifference. Death doesn't come up and go, oh, you're wise? Okay, I'll pass on to the, to the next fool. No, death levels them both with indifference. None can find satisfaction solo. You can't do it on your own. All the world's wisdom will not solve it for you. What does the poor man have, the verse goes on, who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Like he's wise. He's living properly. Even so, you cannot unshackle yourself from the reality. The best person in the world's eyes, gifted, disciplined, effective, cannot achieve satisfaction on their own. No matter how well you conduct your life, you must look to God for help. You can fool the whole world. The whole world can be fooled by you, but God knows, God sees, God sees the heart. He knows the longings of your soul that are never fulfilled apart from him. And think about it, what do you gain from fooling all the living? God knows, God sees. Verse nine, you can't control every outcome. You know, even if you seem to get everything you wish for, Look at verse 9. Better, Solomon uses this word a lot here, better is one thing than another. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite or the soul. Now, this is also vanity and a striving after wind. 
He's going to pronounce Habel on it again. It's brief, it's fleeting, it's a breath, it's a vapor. It isn't going to last. Everything melts away. This mirage-like striving for success. The treadmill that everyone is on. This is why you need to be content with what you have rather than waste your life yearning for what you do not have. And you think about it right this moment. What you don't have, you do not need it right this moment. But what you don't have, you don't need it now. And you're going to be disappointed if you don't accept what God provides you. The sight of the eyes, what you see, what you look at, what you long for, and it's always better than what the appetite, literally the soul, desires. Think about it. The pleasures of this world always seem to look better than what they really deliver. It's the myth of the greener grass, or in, in our case, the, the greener straw. There's the green grass outside the tent, but there's shade here. But you'll be disappointed because the sight of the eyes, the pleasure this world offers, always looks better than what they really are. In our eyes, they promise us satisfaction. They promise us uh, fulfillment. They're always failing to deliver. Money, power, leisure, influence, reputation, sex, they're all powerless to truly satisfy your soul, though they promise great things. The pursuit leaves you wanting. And so Solomon just says, this also is vanity. It's striving after wind. You're grasping at wind. You cannot harness it. But what happens? Our desires wander all over the place. We want one thing one moment with another thing another moment, and it makes us worse off. Our wandering desires makes us worse off. The, the eyes, what God has given to enjoy life and be content, and you might see plenty, but the wandering desire prevents you from being content with what you have. That's why every one of us wants something that we don't have right now. That's why every one of us is planning to get the next thing that we don't have. It's a refusal to be satisfied by sovereignty. How does this show itself out in your life? How does it show out in your life? How does a refusal to be satisfied by God's sovereignty show itself? It shows itself in a refusal to accept outcomes. Yeah, I don't like that. I'm going to refuse to accept it. I'm going to refuse to forgive. I'm going to refuse to let things go. I'm going to insist on holding grudges. I'm going to hammer people about the past. I didn't get my way. Someone's got to pay. How many of us think this way? In marriage, not letting things go when things don't go your way, uh, controlling everything, being punitive, shutting down harmony. In parenting, trying to control all the outcomes for your kids. You're the hovering helicopter parent. You end up submarining your kids' chances and, and their reputations. You go after anybody in your way. In politics, refusal to accept election outcomes. Every four years, some fight the administration at every turn. It's been happening the last four years. Whoever we get for president in a couple weeks, people are going to fight for four years against them. In personal relationships, you prioritize your personal else because what you want is more important. Your expectations disappointments, wondering where life went. In each one of these scenarios, there's this underlying, almost undetected anger 
and resentment that is latent and just ready to lash out and you're miserable and you make other people miserable. These verses here, <laughs> you go, whoa. <laughs> verses 7 and 9 are like, they're dragging me down. They're, they're, they're condemning me. Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're a Christian, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work for you on the cross, shedding his blood in your place, there's no condemnation for you. Your sins were condemned at the cross. There is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness in Christ. But I think most professing Christians can say, whoa, I know this is describing the unbeliever, but it sounds a little too much like me at times, or maybe a lot of the time. These verses are destroying the idea that it is possible to be satisfied apart from God. That a person can't figure life out. This is what we started Ecclesiastes on. We can't figure this out. It was right at the beginning of COVID. We can't figure this out. But true satisfaction comes in living a life of humble devotion to God. You can't have and know and control everything. The sooner we accept it, the sooner you accept it, the sooner I accept it, the better. That you cannot satisfy every desire, even if you work harder than anyone else. And you can't guarantee success even if you know every fact and organize every detail of your life to the nth degree. You can't control every outcome. Now you move on with me to verses 10 through 12 and Solomon's going to remind us that God is the one that ordains everything. That he owns and he knows and he controls everything. The first thing you see, verse 10, God absolutely and sovereignly determines outcomes. Look at verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. God named it. God decreed it. And it is known what man is. There's the fall. There's the depravity. And he's not able to dispute with one stronger than him. God's the one stronger than us. We can't dispute with God about these things. Everything's been named already. God has already decreed it to be. God is stronger. You can't alter the way you or the world was made. It's already been named, already known. You owe your being to the command of God. If you're a Christian today, you owe your eternal life to the decree of God before the world began. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But we also must include in that context the sentence passed at Adam's fall. The curse upon mankind because of our fall into sin, its depravity, its utter depravity. We're bad enough to be sent to hell. Apart from Christ, we are under the wrath of God. We are under the sentence of death. You have to know that bad news if you want to hear the good news because the good news doesn't sound so good if you don't know the bad news. The bad news is we're lost and dead in sin. The good news is God in his sovereign mercy and grace saves those who believe. See, there's a lot of theology in Ecclesiastes. The theology here is depravity and sovereignty. The bad news of depravity and our deadness and lostness in sin but the good news of God's sovereignty and mercy and grace. 
And it's interesting that verse 10 is the middle verse in the Hebrew text of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And only God, this is telling us, only God can guarantee outcomes. You move on to verse 11. God providentially grants blessing to the person of his choosing. You can't set yourself up for it. Look at verse 11. The the more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? Think about how many people boast of great things and are forgotten. Hot air ideas. They got influence in a bit. But their impact and their influence perishes with them. Not acknowledging God and his sovereignty. History is, is littered with forgotten people that have said a lot of things. Solomon even said at the end of Ecclesiastes, the, the making of many books is endless. A life full of boasts. Many words. You know what that is? It's a steaming pile of vanity. Words can't change the world. You, you can add to the mess... You can bless people with your words, but you can also complain about how things should have turned out instead of accepting them as they are. And you take issue with God. You can protest God. You can dispute God. How many professing Christians actually do that all the time? God, you shouldn't have done that. I know better. I'm not satisfied by your sovereignty. You can protest, you can dispute with God, and you can get smacked down like Job did. <laughs> and you can get the classic rebuke of Isaiah 45, 9. Will the clay, like time out, <laughs> will the clay talk back to the potter? Whoa, whoa, let's, let's get this straight. So the clay, Gumby, is going to talk back to the potter. The inanimate object is going to rise up and tell the potter, the determiner, what to do. Hmm. How's that work out for mankind? This is like in Romans 9. I love Romans 9. God says, I will have have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's in the context of salvation. But you can just flow that out into the rest of your life. God is the merciful one. God is the compassionate one. And then we get to verse 12. It's like the capstone of this passage. God knows everything impeccably beforehand, including all the answers you're vainly trying to figure out. All the answers we are vainly striving after, God knows. Look at verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Like, what will happen? What will become of us? We don't know. We can't answer that. Verse 12 almost sounds like Paul defending God's righteousness in Romans 9.20. Again, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Like, really? We're to seek to know and fear God. We're to be content with what he provides and whatever he gives. And we're we're to ask for and receive the gift of enjoying his gifts. But when you force the issue, you'll just be left unsatisfied. You'll just be left frustrated. Uh, It's better to discern the good, acknowledge and obey God in your life, and acknowledge God and live under his sovereignty. 
Well, that challenges you and I, right? That challenges the American dream. That challenges this presupposed, well, long life is, is good and you're wealthy, so you must be satisfied. What's the purpose, though? That's what you have to ask. What's the point of living a long life if it has no Godward orientation? If you have not seen the good of God's sovereignty, your soul is not satisfied, what's the use? You work so hard in your life. You work so hard to be healthy and eat right and diet and exercise and whatever you do, and you work so hard at your, at your callings in life. But it is a dead-end street unless God is the object of your pursuit. And this is, by the way, not condemning exercise or hard work. This is saying Jesus must come first. I'm always exercising, but I'm not doing it so you see my huge muscles. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. But the blessings that we enjoy in life, the material ones, come at a price. Appearances deceive. God looks at the heart. And the most wealthy person could be the most miserable. The poorest person could be the most peaceful. And the problem we have is that we have ceased to be hungry for God. We're hungry for everything else but God. We've forgotten that everything we consume is from God. That we've shifted our love and our desire from the Lord God to his creatures, to his creation. We prefer other things to God. We prefer the world and our possessions and our family and our life and our health above God. This pride is at the root of it. And so many professing Christians are, are locked into that mode. And we know, you put your head on the pillow at night, you know God is your only and highest good. Any other good is good in relation to him. I like what Augustine said. Use and enjoy the things of this world, but love God alone. We would, we would say love God more, wouldn't we? But he said, use and enjoy the things of this world and love God alone. Use his things for his glory and others' good. Love God alone. See, when you supremely love God and, and be, are satisfied in his sovereignty, you can, you can actually appropriately use the things that you have and not make them your idols. Here we are. Here we are at midpoint of Ecclesiastes and the chapter ends with unanswered questions. It is so like Solomon to put us in this position, isn't it? It's so like God to say, uh-uh, I am not going to let you think you have it wired. We just want five or six things. Like, Solomon, just give me five or six things that I can put in my back pocket and one I can put in my front pocket and just get life wired No. He's going to come at it from the same angle. He's going to come at it at a different vantage point, a little slightly different perspective, and he's going to say over and over and over again, God is sovereign, and you need to be satisfied in him. Nothing else will satisfy you. I mean, who knows what is good? Here's the question. Who can tell man what will be after him? Only God knows. I mean, we can't figure out. But whatever will happen, God has already decreed. He's named it. You can't dispute with, with God. He's stronger than you. You can't discern the best way to live your few years on life, and you can't know what will come after you after death. And I love what happens. This is the best thing for us. 
painful but good. The preacher, Koheleth, Ecclesiastes, the preacher is slamming the door on every option except faith. He, he slams every door except the door of faith. He's saying, worship God, keep his commands. Like, how shall we live then, right? I want to give you two, two ideas to take with you today on how you should live in light of this. And the first you're not going to like, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're not going to like it, okay? Number one, embrace your limitations. Just embrace your limitations. I mean, what do you do with all the unanswered questions? How do you live with the unexplained? Well, we get frustrated, we get resentful, we try to figure it out on our own, we demand answers or we fabricate them. We try to compensate for our limitations and overcome them rather than embrace them. But what we're getting pointed to in these verses is that we're to be satisfied by God's sovereignty and embrace our limitations. And that isn't laziness, that isn't irresponsibility. That's the appropriate response to a sovereign God. As hard as you work, as hard as you plan, as hard as you, you, uh, you know, desire things in life, you, you must embrace your limitations because your plans are tentative. God's plans are absolute. You may ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing in life? Why am I doing what I'm doing every day when I get up? What's my motive? It's like when we're trying to figure out the will of God. You know how many times people will be like, Lord, what's your will? And then you go and do something like, oh, that wasn't God's will. I'm backing out of that. James 4. Go to James 4 with me. Because James 4 tells us some things that we need to take to heart. And it really parallels into Ecclesiastes. It really does. James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow... We're going to go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist, just like Ecclesiastes says, a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. It's God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure, Paul says. But so many of us, we, we, we make a decision and then we're worried if it's God's will. Right? It's too late. You married the person. You bought the house. You bought the car. You made the commitment. It's always God's will that you fulfill your responsibility. We want it until it gets tough. We find it easy to say, oh, it wasn't God's will. And embrace your limitations and realize you don't know everything. And there is no blueprint telling you the exact decision to make on things that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture. You just be satisfied with God's sovereignty, love Jesus, and choose wisely. And then you will wisely discover that you cannot be the source of your own satisfaction. You will wisely discover in utter humility. And I believe we are learning this as believers on an ongoing basis. You know, when we raise our kids, we're like, hey, we want our kids to be, you know, independent thinkers and independent and good uh, citizens and what have you. But when you're a, a, a brand newborn baby Christian, God causes you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. When you believe in the Lord Jesus and you're saved, 
you're a brand new baby Christian and you're trying to pray to God and read the Bible and all that, you're not going to become this independent person apart from God. What you realize as a Christian is your life is always and utterly dependent upon God. You, you are more aware of your utter dependence on God. There's a lot of Christians, I believe, that want to put stipulations on everything in their life. I won't fulfill my marriage vows unless, unless my spouse fills my expectations. I won't fellowship with my church unless they do what I want. I, I, I won't be a good citizen unless my choice is elected. You need to just embrace your limitations and surrender to God and be satisfied with his sovereignty. Let me give you one more. One more thing, and then we'll close. Um, secondly, don't much. Continue being faithful to the callings God has put upon your life. Don't worry. Continue being faithful. You're balancing the idea that God knows it all. There's God's foreknowledge, and then you've got our gambling guesswork that we're just like, who can tell what will be after them? Only God. Only God was on earth. You know how many things they didn't know, didn't understand? After the resurrection, you know how many things they didn't know, they didn't understand? At the ascension, all the things they didn't know and understand. Acts 1, they come up to Jesus. Here's the resurrected Christ, ready to be ascended to the Father. And they come together and they say, Lord, is this the moment that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's his answer. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Let me do my job, people, and you do yours. You're going to be my witness. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You do that. Let me do me. Just stop worrying so much. And, and I thank every believer here that has, is faithful in fulfilling the roles that God has given you in life as a spouse, as a parent, as a son, as a daughter, as a church member, as a, as a God that he gives us strength to be faithful. And I just want to take a moment and say thank you to every believer that is being faithful in their life and trusting in Christ and, and being satisfied in his sovereignty in the midst of like, this is the year no one would have chosen to have. 2020. But this is like, this can be the year that you're like, I got the, the greatest breakthroughs in my life in Christ. I, I learned things that I couldn't have learned without going through this pain. We'd rather have life one way, we get it another, but praise God, we get to do what we do right now. You know, the end times are coming. Mark 13. Jesus says, you're going to be hated by all on account of me, but you need to endure. Stand fast while everyone else is falling away. Stand fast. And churches and, and Christian organizations, left and right, stand firm in Christ and his word. Pray like crazy. Trust God and work hard, but stop worrying so much. It distracts you from your calling in Christ. But we live too much in the future. You know, someday when I get married, someday when I have kids, someday when I get the degree, someday when I get the job, then I'll be happy. Someday when I have grandkids, someday, I got two now, praise God, we had another one this week. 
someday when I get to retirement. Stop with the some days and just live today for Christ and, and his glory. I mean, some of us are like fixated. I'm not going to name names and say who it is. But some of us are fixated like a, a pit bull with a tennis ball on the way we want life. On things we cannot know or control. We just have to learn to let go of things and know what to hold on to. Hold on to the word of God. Live in the moment. Plan wisely. Do your job. Let God do his. I love Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Like, we have the word of God. So invest in the word of God. Stop being so worried about what everything else is going on and, and get into the word of the Bible. You might get bogged down. Understand it. Good. Off me. As a Christian, and I'm going to trust God to help me understand his word and renew my, he'll renew my mind and he'll grow me up in Christ. I will just carefully attend to what he says and know that God will see me through. By the way, I know we talked a lot about politics right now. We're in the political cycle. We're in the election cycle. So, hey, this is a quote from a politician. In fact, when I heard them say it, I'm like, I've got to write that down. I could use this in a sermon. Here's what, Paul, here's what the politician said. This is not chaos where we have no control. We can do this. Let's make it happen. Believe in each other. Believe in yourself. Can I call baloney on that? not the way life is. This is not the way life is. It's more fluid than that. Solomon keeps giving us these reminders. Sovereign. In him. Be satisfied by sovereignty. And that's not doing nothing. That's not resigning yourself to live in misery. It's doing whatever you can for God's glory and others' good and choosing to live with joy. It's understanding God's role in yours. God is in ultimate control and he knows everything. So stop worrying about all the things you cannot change. It's embracing your limitations. You find that you're able to do more than you imagine because God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. It is saying in life or in death, I will glorify the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Because believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being satisfied by sovereignty is not just believing a doctrine it is surrender. It is letting that sink into your heart and your mind and your choices so that you embrace those realities. I can't have and know and control everything. But God has and knows and controls everything. And so what happens is when you cannot see, you cannot tell, you cannot hold what you want, and the fog just drops and you're blind to sovereignty, sovereignty overcomes your depravity. And your heart can actually be satisfied in the riches of Christ to the praise of his glory. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign and we can be satisfied by you and surrender to you and trust you for what's next in our life. Thank you, Lord, that you satisfy the one who surrenders to your sovereignty. This is our heart's desire, Lord. May you be honored in and through our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing one final song together?
good to be together to worship the Lord, to sing, to pray, to hear the word. As we go, I just want to encourage you to find a place to serve somewhere at Grace. We still need more set up and tear down people and ministry people. And please consider that. Our Lord, shepherd of the blood of the equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day. God bless.